Chapter Three of the Hand of Fu Manchu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Hand of Fu Manchu by Sax Romer. Chapter Three. Sakya Muni. The faint disturbance faded into silence again. Across the dead man's body I met Smith's gaze. Faint wreaths of fog floated in from the outer room. Beaton clutched the foot of the bed, and the structure shook in sympathy with his wild trembling. That was the only sound now. There was absolutely nothing physical so far as my memory serves to signalize the coming of the brown man. Yet, stealthy as his approach had been, something must have warned us, for suddenly with one accord we three turned upon the bed and stared out into the room from which the fog wreaths floated in. Beaton stood nearest the door, but although he turned he did not go out, but with a smothered cry crouched back against the bed. Smith it was who moved first, then I followed, and close upon his heels burst into the disordered sitting-room. The outer door had been closed but not bolted, and what with the tinted light diffused through the silken Japanese shade, and the presence of fog in the room, I was almost tempted to believe myself the victim of a delusion. What I saw, or thought I saw, was this. A tall screen stood immediately inside the door, and around its end, like some materialization of the choking mist, glided a lithe yellow figure, a slim crouching figure, wearing a sort of loose robe. An impression I had of jet-black hair, protruding from beneath a little cap, of finely chiselled features and great luminous eyes, then, with no sound to tell of, a door opened or shut. The apparition was gone. "'You saw him, Petrie! You saw him!' cried Smith. In three bounds he was across the room, had tossed the screen aside and thrown open the door. Out he sprang into the yellow haze of the corridor, tripped, and, uttering a cry of pain, fell sprawling upon the marble floor. Hot with apprehension I joined him, but he looked up with a wry smile and began furiously rubbing his left shin. A queer trick, Petrie, he said, rising to his feet, but nevertheless effective. He pointed to the object which had occasioned his fall. It was a small metal chest, evidently of very considerable weight, and it stood immediately outside the door of number 14A. "'That was what he came for, sir, that's what he came for. You were too quick for him.' Beaton stood behind us, his horror-bright eyes fixed upon the box. "'Eh?' rapped Smith, turning upon him. "'That's what Sir Gregory brought to England.' The man ran on almost hysterically. That's what he's been guarding this past two weeks, night and day, crouching over it with a loaded pistol. That's what cost him his life, sir. He's had no peace day or night since he got it. We were inside the room again now, Smith bearing the coffer in his arms, and still the man ran on. He's never slept for more than an hour at a time that I know of for weeks past. Since the day we came here he hasn't spoken to another living soul and he's lain there on the floor at night with his head on that brass box, and sat watching over it all day. "'Beaten!' he'd cry out, perhaps in the middle of the night. "'Beaten! Do you hear that damned woman?' But although I'd begun to think I could hear something, I believe it was the constant strain working on my nerves and nothing else at all. Then he was always listening out for someone he called the man with the limp. Five and six times a night he'd have me up to listen with him. "'There he goes, beaten,' he'd whisper, crouching with his ear pressed flat to the door. "'Do you hear him dragging himself along?' "'God knows how I've stood it as long as I have, for I've known no peace since we left China. Once we got here I thought it would be better, but it's been worse. Gentlemen have come, from the India office, I believe. 
but he would not see them said he would see no one but mr nayland smith he had never lain in his bed until to-night but what with taking no proper food nor sleep and some secret trouble that was killing him by inches he collapsed altogether a while ago and i carried him in and laid him on the bed as i told you and now he's dead now he's dead beaton leant up against the mantelpiece and buried his face in his hands whilst his shoulders shook convulsively he had evidently been greatly attached to his master and i found something very pathetic in this breakdown of a physically strong man smith laid his hands upon his shoulders you have passed through a very trying ordeal he said and no man could have done his duty better but forces beyond your control have proved too strong for you i am nayland smith the man spun around with a surprising expression of relief upon his pale face so whatever can be done continued my friend to carry out your master's wishes will be done now rely upon it go into your room and lie down until we call you thank you sir and thank god you are here said beaton dazedly and with one hand raised to his head he went obediently to the smaller bedroom and disappeared within now petrie rapped smith glancing around the littered floor since i am empowered to deal with this matter as i see fit and since you are a medical man we can devote the next half hour at any rate to a strictly confidential inquiry into this most perplexing case i propose that you examine the body for any evidences that may assist you determining the cause of death whilst i make a few inquiries here i nodded without speaking and went into the bedroom it contained not one solitary item of the dead man's belongings and in every way bore out beaton's statement that sir gregory had never inhabited it i bent over hale as he lay fully dressed upon the bed saving the singularity of the symptom which had immediately preceded death viz the paralysis of the muscles of articulation i should have felt disposed to ascribe his end to sheer initiation and a cursory examination brought to light nothing contradictory to that view not being prepared to proceed further in the matter at the moment i was about to rejoin smith whom i could hear rummaging about amongst the litter of the outer room when i made a curious discovery lying in the fold of the disordered bed-linen were a few petals of some kind of blossom three of them still attached to a fragment of slender stalk i collected the tiny petals mechanically and held them in the palm of my hand studying them for some moments before the mystery of their presence there became fully appreciable to me then i began to wonder the petals which i was disposed to class as belonging to some species of kirkus or psychic nut though bruised were fresh and therefore could not have been in the room for many hours how could they have been introduced and by whom above all what could their presence there at that time portend smith i called and walked towards the door carrying the mysterious fragments in my palm look what i found upon the bed nayland smith who was bending over an open dispatch case which he had placed upon a chair turned and his glance fell upon the petals and tiny piece of stem i think i have never seen so sudden a change of expression take place in the face of any man even in that imperfect light i saw him blanch i saw a hard glitter come into his eyes he spoke evenly but hoarsely put those things down there on the table anywhere I obeyed him without demur, for something in his manner had chilled me with foreboding. You did not break that stalk? No, I found it as you see it. Have you smelled the petals? I shook my head, whereupon, having his eyes fixed upon me with the strangest expression in their grey depths, Nayland Smith said a singular thing. 
pronounce slowly the words sakya muni he directed i stared at him scarcely crediting my senses but i mean it he rapped do as i tell you sakya muni i said in ever-increasing wonder smith laughed unmirthfully go to the bathroom and thoroughly wash your hands was his next order renew the water at least three times as i turned to fulfil his instructions for i doubted no longer his deadly earnestness beaton he called beaton very white-faced and shaky came out from the bedroom as i entered the bathroom and whilst i proceeded carefully to cleanse my hands i heard smith interrogating him have any flowers been brought into the room to-day beaton flowers sir certainly not nothing has been brought in here but what i've brought myself are you certain of that positive who brought up the meals then if you'll look into my room here sir you'll see that i have enough tinned and bottled stuff to last us for weeks sir gregory sent me out to buy it on the day we arrived no one else had left or entered these rooms until you came to-night i returned to find nayland smith standing tugging at the lobe of his left ear in evident perplexity he turned to me i find my hands over full he said would you oblige me by telephoning for inspector weymouth also i should be glad if you would ask monsieur samarkan the manager to see me here immediately as i was about to quit the room not a word of our suspicions to monsieur samarkan he added not a word about the brass box i was far along the corridor ere i remembered that which remembered earlier had saved me the journey there was a telephone in every suite however i was not indisposed to avail myself of an opportunity for a few moments undisturbed reflection and avoiding the lift i descended by the broad marble staircase to what strange adventure were we committed what did the brass coffer contain which sir gregory had guarded night and day something associated in some way with tibet something which he believed to be the key of india and which had brought in its train presumably the sinister man with a limp who was the man with the limp what was the sea fan lastly by what conceivable means could the flower which my friend evidently regarded with extreme horror have been introduced into hale's room and why had i been required to pronounce the words sakya muni so ran my reflections at random and to no clear end and as is often the case in such circumstances my steps bore them company so that all at once i became aware that instead of having gained the lobby of the hotel i had taken some wrong turning and was in a part of the building entirely unfamiliar to me a long corridor of the inevitable white marble extended far behind me i had evidently traversed it before me was a heavily curtained archway Irritably I pulled the curtain aside, learnt that it masked a glass-panelled door, opened this door, and found myself in a small court, dimly lighted and redolent of some pungent, incense-like perfume. One step forward I took, then pulled up abruptly. A sound had come to my ears. For a second curtain doorway, close to my right hand, it came, a sound of muffled tapping, together with that of something which dragged upon the floor within my brains the words seemed audibly to form the man with the limp i sprang to the door had my hand upon the drapery when a woman stepped out barring the way no impression not even a vague one did i form of her costume save that she wore a green silk shawl embroidered with raised white figures of birds thrown over her head and shoulders and draped in such fashion that part of her face was concealed 
i was transfixed by the vindictive glare of her eyes of her huge dark eyes they were ablaze with anger but it was not this expression within them which struck me so forcibly as the fact that they were in some way familiar motionless we faced one another then you go away said the woman at the same time extending her arms across the doorway as barriers to my progress her voice had a husky intonation her hands and arms which were bare and of old ivory hue were laden with barbaric jewellery much of it tawdry silverware of the bazaars certainly she was a half-caste of some kind probably a eurasian i hesitated the sounds of dragging and tapping had ceased, but the presence of this grotesque oriental figure only increased my anxiety to pass the doorway. I looked steadily into the black eyes. They looked into mine unflinchingly. "'You go away, please,' repeated the woman, raising her right hand and pointing to the door whereby I had entered. "'These private rooms, what you doing here?' Her words, despite her broken English, served to recall to me the fact that I was beyond doubt a trespasser by what right did i presume to force my way into other people's apartments there is someone in there whom i must see i said realizing however that my chance of doing so was poor you see nobody she snapped back uncompromisingly you go away she took a step toward me continuing to point to the door where had i previously encountered the glance of those splendid savage eyes so engaged was I with this taunting partial memory, and so sure, if the woman would but uncover her face, of instantly recognizing her, that still I hesitated. Whereupon, glancing rapidly over her shoulder into whatever place lay beyond the curtain window, she suddenly stepped back and vanished, drawing the curtains too with an angry jerk. I heard her retiring footsteps, then came a loud bang. If her object in intercepting me had been to cover the slow retreat of someone, she had succeeded. Recognizing that I had cut a truly sorry figure in the encounter, I retraced my steps. By what route I ultimately regained the main staircase, I have no idea, for my mind was busy with that taunting memory of the two dark eyes looking out from the folds of the green embroidered shawl. Where and when had I met their glance before? To that problem I sought an answer in vain. The message dispatched to New Scotland Yard, I found Monsieur Samarkan, long famous as a maitre d'hôtel in Cairo, and now host of London's newest and most palatial Khan. Portly and wearing a grey imperial, Monsieur Samarkan had the manners of a courtier and the smile of a true Greek. I told him what was necessary and no more desiring him to go to suite 14a without delay and also without arousing unnecessary attention i dropped no hint of foul play but monsieur samarkan expressed profound and professional regret that so distinguished though unprofitable a patron should have selected the new louvre thus early in its history as the terminus of his career by the way i said have you oriental guests with you at the moment no monsieur he assured me not a certain oriental lady i persisted monsieur samarkan slowly shook his head possibly monsieur has seen one of the ayahs there are several anglo-indian families resident in the nulu at present an ayah it was just possible of course yet end of chapter three